a new paradigm in American common sense, researching the hidden societies which so subtly influence our lives, and exposing the agenda for totalitarian global empire. We're back with a looking glass forum. We're back again with Looking Glass Forum, and I just want to pick up where we left off. We are trying to educate. This information needs to be made available again and again and again. And um, when it was an issue of getting the these kind of criticisms in print, then you could see that there was a lot of extra work done by revisionist historians to create false or misleading presentations of the historical facts, treatments of the past to make them more palatable today. And you can see that over and over again. And the difficult and troublesome truths are, are tried, you know, like the, you'll see this on the internet, they can't quite censor it or get away from this history. So they have to go and constantly make arguments that Pope Pius XII helped 800,000 Jews save them and isn't he so he's he needs to be made a saint so somehow the, the the roman church thinks that it has the power to make people saints or not and your church doesn't your church and your town doesn't have that power but only the roman church is the the church alone that has the authority of god to, uh, and to to set up kings and take them down to set up governments and to make war to decide religion and so this is an autocratic dictatorship in the guise of a church. And that's, that's really the difficult truth that we're bringing out. And you see it discussed lots of different ways. And it always comes with a lot of the information you see. It comes with a twist. I mean, there's always the, the, the abiding anti-Semitic tropes. The Zionists, the international banker Zionists who created communism. And uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of people with Jewish ancestry that are in the front of this thing, Karl Marx. I mean, all the people, all the names you'll know, many of them um, tied into this move towards everybody is afraid to say conspiracy. What's, what's a conspiracy? Conspiracy is a secret plan, a secret doctrine, a hidden agenda. And what is that? I mean, a hidden agenda is a, is a, is a setting up and preparing the battlefield in advance for where you'll do battle, for instance. It's, it's the process of getting the world to be in the condition that you want it to be in. And so this idea of a, of a world order, of a new one, tends to suggest that this current world order will not do. So when we're changing world orders, we're finding ourselves in the difficult place of having to decide whether free, a free government, a popularly elected democratic republic like America, where the citizens are the ones who make the important political choices about the direction we're going to head, head together as a nation, whether that power should be in the hands of the people at the ballot box or whether it should be in the hands of an autocratic dictatorship, a supreme monarch, an absolute dictator, is really what this, this swing of the pendulum of, of uh, Western civilization in the process of, you know, of people trying to, you can see it happening already as people try to stay home from work and try to collect these, they expect to collect these huge unemployment checks for COVID relief just in perpetuity. I see people out there still wearing masks. It's gonna be 2022 and they, and they just can't shake it. So the, the totalitarian nature of this kind of medical tyranny that the Davos, the party of Davos has put on us 
has been well thought out and well planned. And for me, it goes back to the Congress of Vienna and to the different the, the, the times when the, the sovereign powers of Europe, those high contracting authorities with a immunity who are sovereign under law, so that the basis of your entire law presupposes that the, uh, the nature of these individuals is at a higher station than common people. The point being that um, if you look back the history and look back, you know, at the submission of King John to the papacy in order to get his, the crown of England, his, his royal, he had basically had to pay for it and ultimately rent the, the right to wear the, the, his royal, his, his own noble heritage was something ultimately that, the, that he had to pay yearly sums and tax the people of, of England in a, in a terrible way in order to basically pay the ransom that the Pope required for him to get his crown back. So his, his authority, the crown of England, the crown corporation, the crown of the, the Knights Templar, if you will, you have to recognize that the Temple Church, the, the, the power center of the ancient Templar Knights, is set up there in the city of London, the chancel, and the inner temple and the, the round temple. So the, those are the temples of the Templars and the, they're, they're buried there. <laughs> it's not just something I'm making up, but they have their actual tombs there. So the point is, is that the crown itself is something that is wielded by the papacy because the Templar Knights are really just papal knights. They bow their knee to, the, the, to Rome and to, the, and to the papacy and they serve the wars uh, the, the defense of true religion, which ultimately in their minds is Roman Catholicism. So there's the tie between this inner city of London with the, the temple bar, with the crown that, that is really the crown of, of Rome. So the, the hidden power there, and it's really been there since before King John, because the city of London was operating separately even at the time of King John. So, you know, he he had to sign the Magna Carta at sword point by his his barons held him accountable and held him in check to give them their freedoms but ultimately that was not to last or when King John lost the crown he didn't really get it back but he was like a puppet controlled by the power of Rome and so you can see that today with the uh, the way the queen the queen is there is just kind of like a figurehead continues to exist continues to earn money from the state from the people of Britain of the English people if you will but doesn't really serve any real purpose. She has to, you know, they have to come to her to get her assent and her agreement for certain things, and she can agree or not agree. But all the, the, all the rules and all the stipulations and all the, the strictures by which they must operate are not up to her either. She's not able to ultimately, you know, sovereignly control the outcome of what she does. When she has to go into the city of London, she has to ceremonially touch the sword of the mayor of London, who's a separate power, and she has to recognize that power. She can't just, she doesn't have the power to just, you know, ultimately just change that or unilaterally re reorder the whole system. And she plays a part within it. She's the Queen of England, but the Queen of England is a persona and a title and a feature of the, of the, uh, the world's political powers that are ultimately controlled by the Vatican. You, you, that's, that's what you'll find when you, when you look into the background of this. And so when we say that Manhattan banking districts with Chase Manhattan and other large banking houses 
Bank of America being a huge one, and they, I know they reconstitute themselves in different conglomerates. But those, that history is uh, Citibank, of course, are all extensions of the money power that was coming through a secondary sources into America and being established indirectly. So a lot of these you know, huge titans of you know, the 1920s and 1930s were knights themselves, Knights of Malta, Papal Knights, and they served with their brothers overseas. They, and they, that was their order, that was their, their inner constitution and their deepest vow was to serve in those ranks, those military ranks. And being an American or a Russian or a German in the 1930s was irrelevant because you were in a, in a deeper order and had a higher calling as a Knight of Malta, you had to serve what the, what the other secret agenda was. And so the, these are the kind of difficult conversations, guys, that we have to get into. We have to kind of bring this stuff out and make it known, even though a lot of people are intimidated by this, don't have the intellectual grasp of it, don't like where it takes you, don't like emotionally how it makes you feel, don't like what the implications are for our lives if we ultimately don't control our lives you know, the way that we think. And if they're beginning to do some of the things in the past they've done historically, they're starting to repeat that here in America, we need to be able to be in the position to comprehend that. So in this episode, I hope to characterize a new understanding of the relationship between America and Britain. And we're going to get into some of the backstory of the the book, Carol Quigley, Tragedy and Hope. And he was, of course, an important intellectual, some say one of the most brilliant and most well-educated, most intelligent man ever. And uh, he was a professor at Georgetown University. And we're going to go into some details about that. But we're trying to establish here the little-known, obscure, practically invisible, and hard-to-define occult nature of some of the secret societies that operate to advance the, the necessities and the planning and the prerogative of the elites. And in our minds, the elites represent some of the colossal wealth that you see established there in Europe and in the most organized ways so that the, the genesis of Western civilization and the adaptation of technology and arts and sciences into a way that are productive for empire are really the, the lessons learned of the ancient Roman Empire and the series of empires that have built up by conquest throughout history into antiquity. So with the kind of wane and the collapse of the Roman Empire, you're going to see the establishment and the growth of the Roman Catholic Church institution as it begins to occupy the old spaces of imperialism and the prerogatives of the Caesars and the will to unify all systems into a submission and into a cooperation, into a co-opt of Rome. And of course, just like the old Roman Empire, you had to obey the wishes and mandates from on high, from the capital down, and they carried with them a divine weight. So that little by little, the Caesars were more closely associated with the gods and had themselves decorated in statuary, sculpted like gods to evince this divine power to associate their bloodlines with the ancient idea of Hercules and uh, and, and the different gods of, of myth- mythology in order to give their stature and augment their the weight of their authority. And so, in so many ways, you see that this move towards the ancient archetype of Nimrod, who was the absolute god-king, in that mythology, which led to Pharaoh and the idea of Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldees, the Babylonian god-king, and those who ruled as high priest 
uh, hierophant and as absolute monarchical governor. And you can see this play out again with, with Cyrus the Great, with Alexander the Great, with Julius Caesar, the rise of a single man to become the absolute state in himself, the divine right of kings. So these are some of the, the topics we have to kind of wade through as we establish our point here. And we're talking about the nature of the special relationship between Britain and the United States. And this resurgence and this move towards unifying what was once separated. So in this discussion, we're going to get into a few different issues here. We have the very fascinating and cryptic and shadowy Pilgrim Society. The Pilgrim Society was established both in Britain and in the United States. We're going to discuss also the figure of Cecil Rhodes, the Rhodes Colossus, the great man of enormous wealth who set up De Beers mining operation and diamond gold operations in South Africa and once had a country named after him, Rhodesia. But ultimately, that was taken down and replaced with a new name, Zimbabwe. But we have to recognize the great influence of Cecil Rhodes and his network of English financiers and academics. And ultimately, he would create a secret society that would be the center point of the wheel for other secret societies. And they were, of course, not to have a name and not to have any kind of written or recorded information regarding their agenda. But ultimately, we can recognize the same pattern and the same resurgence and vivification of the Illuminati powers that were exposed in the 1700s. And it's the same operation of secret groups within concentric circles operating to wield, wield power and to control various events in various places. And so we will get into this. We're going to just start opening some of these articles and just letting some of these different speakers discuss. Like I said, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a discussion that's hard to really elucidate for you in a really meaningful and crisp way because we have to dig down and drill down to get some of the, the facts. We have to listen to various speakers and, and, and do some of the scholarship and research of various individuals who are trying to track a mystery that has been hidden. We're bringing you along with us as we begin to really just take a look at some of the, the writings the facts, some of the research surrounding the subjects that you can't directly observe. So you have to go to sources of information that can begin to give you a secondary, reflective, perhaps even a silhouette of the context of the information you're trying to draw out. And that's what we're doing here. We're going to work to listen to what people have to say about it. And of course, if you would like to weigh in, we would hope and expect that you would just check that email and to send us information, you know, let us know, you know, if you have anything to add or if you disagree or if you dispute some of the facts, we're just always interested in going further into the historical framework so we can get a better view of what happened. And remember that Dr. Anthony Sutton, who we talked about many times in this program, was the one who actually exposed the, the Skull and Bone Society at Yale. It was so hidden, it was so secret and so well secluded from common knowledge that no one had any idea about it until a great-granddaughter of one of the men who had been a Skull and Bonesman found that in her, her grandfather's belongings an actual private copy of the of the members. And she gave the book to Anthony Sutton, and he looked at it and, and discovered for the first time that anyone had ever written or really understood the reality and the influence and the, the magnitude of the power of the Brotherhood of Death, the Skull and Bones Order out of Yale, which was just positioned and situated as a simple senior year fraternity. And, and think about it, most people when they go to 
school, they get in their fraternity and they do their hazing and they do their pledging the first year and they spend the rest of their college years in the fraternity. Well, the Skull and Bones fraternity, where they were called Knights, was a, a senior year fraternity. So you joined it at the last year of your schooling and it helped you to, it was really oriented towards where you would go next after school and directing you towards the, the agenda of the globalists that we're seeing coming out of the European Union. And of course, does the nation of Malta, do they have a seat at the United Nations? I'll have to go and look because I think that the Knights of Malta are, you know, are seated now as permanent observers, as, as permanent observer status within the United Nations. There's another article we can get into. But let us take a look at this interesting discussion and a reading and a discussion around the book Code Word Barbalon. And Code Word Barbalon is a very fascinating book. It's hard to come by. It's on the, the, the list of banned books. It's a book you're not allowed to read. It talks about information or conspiracy theories and information that will broaden a great shadowy aspect of history that you're not allowed to learn about. Even if you go to MIT, even if you go to Stanford, even if you go to the highest, most expensive universities, they will not teach you these subjects. And that's what we're dedicated to here on Looking Glass Forum. So let's listen to your Glisman once again and his discussion about the Cecil Rhodes Society. We have come to page 361, and the next subchapter of uh, Cecil Rhodes, The Global Manipulator, is called The Brief History of the Rhodes Secret Society. So on page 361, in the middle of the page, I'm going to continue for everyone who has his own copy of the book and wants to continue and reading along with us. On February 5th, 1891, Rhodes and two other influential men formed the Society of the Round Table, which Rhodes had been scheming for 16 years. One of the men was William T. Stead, quote, probably the most sensational journalist of the day, unquote. The third was Reginald Berlioz Brett, later known as Lord Escher, friend and confidant of Queen Victoria, and later to be the most influential advisor of King Edward VII and King George V. Rhodes and his helpers also formed a secret society called the Circle of Initiates, along with several other semi-secret front organizations, chief of which was a scholarship fund. The following is a quote from the Jesuit professor Carol Quigley, who is in the meantime deceased, and is the author of the book uh, Tragedy and Hope, who was Bill Clinton's mentor, while the latter was a student at the Jesuit-owned Georgetown University. Carol quickly gives this insight into the background of Lord Isher, the Queen's confidant. Quote, Brett, who succeeded his father as Viscount Isher in 1899, is one of the most influential and one of the least known men in British politics in the last two generations. His importance could be judged uh, could be judged better by the positions he refused than by those he held during his long life, between 1852 and 1930. Isha's reason for refusing these positions were twofold. He wanted to work behind the scenes rather than in the public view, and his work in secret was so important and so influential that any public post would have meant a reduction in his power. Isha was probably the most important advisor on political matters to Queen Victoria, King Edward VII, 
and King George V. Unquote. What quickly writes what quickly writes next is even more revealing. Quote, in South, in South Africa, Garrett, another of Rhodes' collaborators, was on the most intimate personal relationships with Rhodes. That Garrett knew of the secret society is recorded by Garrett himself in an article which he published in the Contemporary Review after Rhodes' death in 1902. The words in which Garrett made his last revelation are of some significance. He spoke of, quote, that idea of a sort of Jesuit-like secret society, unquote. You see, dear reader, there is nothing new under the sun. The SS was established under the same hierarchy as the Jesuits, and so is the secret society of the Rhodes, uh, of, uh, of Cecil Rhodes. Yeah? There is nothing new under the sun. They always copy from each other, and that's why they are all to be identified with the same goal. So I like this particular section with your Glisman. He's narrowing right on in with the book there, Code Word Barbalon, which is an exposure of secret societies, and it goes into some depth into Carol Quigley's book. And it shows, looking at the writings of the, the compatriots of Cecil Rhodes and the men that he was bringing into power with him to create these round table borders and the inner circle of power that would begin to finance and control the different lodges of Freemasonry and the different esoteric orders of the Eastern Stars and the different lodges of the, they have Freemason lodges in Cairo, which is the Muslim Brotherhood. People talk about the Muslim Brotherhood in relation to events in the Middle East, but they fail to understand that the Muslim Brotherhood is actually a lodge of esoteric Freemasonry that's situated in Cairo and represents uh, Freemasonry of the Orient variety, of the, the Arab or Middle Eastern variety, and is composed of a secret society. And so that's what the Muslim Brotherhood is. And these different secret societies come with a certain pattern, with a certain just like you would expect that a military a division would have um, a certain kind of regiment discipline. Even militaries who are facing each other in battle will each have their own distinct military code, their own uh, pre-trained movements, their own uh, calls and signs on the battlefield in order to communicate. And this is no different than the same thing we see in different esoteric orders or mystery schools, if you will, and the different kind of names the different kind of nomenclature to describe them are part of the occult process of making them hard to define. In this case, Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Milner and Lord Balfour and Lord Rothschild and others who were involved at the creation of this secret society were well aware that they were going to organize and reconstitute the different occult orders and the different lodges of Freemasonry, as we said, and they were going to bring them into power and begin to use them. And you have to recognize the round table is a symbolic of the knighthood orders. And the knighthood orders are the orders of high-level initiation that you achieve when you're in the York or Scottish Rite, when you're in the Lodge of Freemasonry. Once you get to the highest levels, you begin to take on the distinction of the knight of the royal secret, knights of the the sun, knights of the rosy cross, knights of this, knights of that, knights of the knights of the temple, the Templar knights. Those are the, the names of the different high-level Masonic orders. So when you talk about 
a round table group, the idiom, the idiomatic nature of the symbolism of the round table refers to the orders of knights and specifically to the legend of King Arthur, which is a British knighthood tale. So it's obvious that we're talking about medieval, non-democratic, noble power. The power of the noblemen, their finances, their castles, their horses, their, their knights, and over that of the common man, which who are just vassals, who are just serfs, who just are common people who live in the mud, and they better bring in the turnips and the, and the cabbages, or they're going to get it. And that's the nature of the ideological governing regime that they intend to bring about. It has nothing to do with voting, it has nothing to do with the democracy or republican values. It's a very of the Dark Ages, which is really what it was, because that was the period when the papacy was in charge and the auto de fe of inquisitions, the burning of witches, if you will, of heretics, and the, the city square of every town and hamlet in Europe was in full and horrific display for the world to see, and you can see that ultimately the resurgence of the papacy, the restoration of the papacy to what it once was, is beginning. The revival of the Holy Roman Empire is taking place with the European Union, and we can see that on a global scale that the power structure is no longer really interested in seeing any more nationalism. Okay, so the nationalism of the United States separating from from the United Kingdom, from the Atlantean imperialism of the British crown, the British Empire, if you will, was was uh, broken up and separated by the American Revolution, and they ultimately are in in you know in all the secrecy that they're clothed in. Their purpose is to revive once again the submission of the territories of the British crown and bring them back into the fold of the UK, if you will. So I think we can expect some big wars, some big diseases, some big destructive events to play out that will ultimately move us in that direction. You can see that this agenda is being fulfilled in the kind of public drama of Prince William and Prince Harry. So now Prince William is getting set to become the monarch there in the UK, and Prince William is supposed to be here at odds with his family over here in Canada and in LA and in the Americas, just kind of trying to be a normal guy, but ultimately you can see that there'll be a crown set up for him too as well over these North American territory. And you can see that in my mind, a lot of the, the fractious and divisive politics and a lot of the unsettled calamity that we see around the world, even the way that they pulled out of Afghanistan in such a destructive way is a way to just change the narrative and change the the, the, the public storyline and the news, change the headlines, if you will. And you can see that really what happened during the Trump administration was they set the, the, the whole situation up for the vaccines because right before the outbreak of COVID, uh, they had uh, allowed there to be a new law where you could freely take experimental med medicines. All you have to do is sign a waiver and you can take a lot of these experimental experimental medications or treatments that are banned uh, in the United States, but they're being used and tried around the world that if it could save you, we'll, we'll try to experiment. And, you know, if you want to just try to save your own life and try different remedies that uh, are not FDA approved, then you can sign a document and it's all well and good. And then all of a sudden we come out with these crazy vaccines and they're experimental and, and I don't care what the FDA says later. <clears throat> to try to clean it up, we really have an issue of, of people being experimented on in this country because you're going to sign the, the waiver and you're going to take the shot and you really don't know what they're giving you and you don't even have a right to sue. You have no more recourse. So we're going to just do the natural way over here. A lot of people drinking water, running on the treadmills, going to the gym and then going down and getting this toxic shot. It doesn't make any sense. So as we're moving forward here, we're just interested in trying to define the nature of the relationship that uh, of this secret society that Cecil Rhodes 
was building and it was monolithic and his money was was incomprehensible today at the time he was probably the richest man in the world and he set these these uh, power moves and these secret orders into motion uh, when he was alive and he kept them financed and under control with with his trust after the fact after his death so when he died they really got the full the money and the full uh, power and support that they were going to get in the grant that he allowed them financially so there's going to be several different organizations and there's no documents that we can point to there's no photographs of people shaking hands we're just we're just describing to you the occult history the secret history of what we can expose and we're trying to get to the bottom of it and anything you can add in the audience please do looks like a couple different movements were, were directly brought into being. One would be the, as we said, the Pilgrim Society, and the other one would be, among others, would be the Fabian Socialists, the Fabian Society in the UK. And we'll, we'll discuss as in-depth as we can about what those groups were, were, would accomplish. As outcroppings and outgrowths of the Round Table Society that Cecil Rhodes would establish carry on with York Glisman a little bit. He's going to talk about Carol Quigley, and he's a very, very important individual that you might not have heard of, and we're, he was a lecturer at Georgetown University, and he wrote one of the books that exposed these secret societies that we like to often discuss here on the podcast to the world for the first time. continues to tell us on page 362 that perhaps this is a good time as any to reveal more about this man. Carol Quigley. He lived between 1910 and 1977. Quickly graduated magna cum laude with MA and Master's and PhD degrees from Harvard. He was the youngest person to receive a PhD from Harvard. After teaching at Harvard and Princeton, he went to the oldest Jesuit university in America, Georgetown, where for 28 consecutive years alumni selected him as their most influential professor. He became a highly respected professor at the Faculty of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, you know, that was established by Walsh, and was also a consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense, the House Committee on Astronautics and Space Exploration, and to the U.S. Navy. We will hear more from this knowledgeable and interesting man shortly. One of the greatest influences on Rhodes was the book by Winwood Reed, The Martyrdom of Man. Rhodes said of the book, it made me what I am. In that book, Reed wrote that there was no God and that the world should be run on the basis of social Darwinism, survival of the fittest. Reed also attacked tradition, uh, traditional morality advocating a secular humanism. Rhodes himself was widely believed to be a homosexual or a sodomite, as I prefer to call them. Of significance, another of his favorite books included the works of classical Greek and Roman scholars, but it was the sixth volume work of Edward Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, between 1776 and 1788 that was written, I think. That was his favorite, which Rhodes read and reread. Why? Well, note the year, 1776, the founding of the Illuminati. That widely publicized, Rhodes was a high-ranking Freemason, 
removed. Shortly after arriving at Oxford, Rhodes was initiated into Freemasonry at the Apollo University Lodge number 357. On April 17, 1877, he was raised to the degree of Master Mason in the same lodge. Rhodes also joined a Scottish Rite Lodge at Oxford called Prince Rose Cra Lodge number 30. And strangely, on one occasion, he casually revealed the satanic cult secrets of the 33rd Rite. Thus, it seems Rhodes was himself initiated as a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason. That's about the same standing that Albert Pike had when he was ruling the United States as the most high Freemason at the end of the 19th century, correct? Correct. That was also a 33rd degree Freemason of the Scottish Rite. What is significant about Rhodes' Masonic connection is that like the Jesuit Adam Weishaupt, Rhodes is in successive wills, six or eight in total, or seven, as we also spoke about in an earlier broadcast, expressed his determination to set up a powerful secret society within Freemasonry to be based on the order of the Jesuits. And as we saw earlier, he openly expressed his admiration for the Jesuits, whom he said uh, whom he said had achieved much good despite what he cleverly termed their quote-unquote bad cause and bad leaders. Attacking your true allegiance is sometimes the best disguise, as Adam Weishaupt did in 1776 when he affected hatred for the Jesuit order. So that's a fascinating point that Jorg Glisman is making, and really the, the book code word Barbalon is, is pointing out that in order to distance themselves from their actual original source, they have to somehow sometimes attack and create hatred for the cause by which they actually serve. And in many ways, I think we're seeing the sovereign national independence of America eroded into what is taking the shape of a North American Union. You can see that we're having issues at the border. There's no one to stop the the refugees or the illegal immigrants or however you want to, however you want to, whatever syntax you want to use to describe the, the scenario. The people that are wanting to move north are just really moving north. And they're the, the having the same issue in Canada where they're starting to bring in a lot of, the, of some of these Afghan refugees or coming in there and you're having an issue over the sovereignty uh, of Canadian soil and how people are, are to be um, uh, treated who are moving freely across the whole continent. And so you can see that ultimately people are going to take advantage of this kind of environment and, uh, you know, they have politicized there's a there's a kind of like a radical discombobulation within politics and and their left and right. There's no gradualism in the development of political thought or grassroots power bases. Or just, this is really just a, a, a clashing between uh, radical sides and radical opposites. And on one hand, you have people closing down the XL pipeline, which would really just bring oil freely back and forth between North America or between Canada and the United States. It's really a pipeline that would probably go all the way down to Mexico, too. And so this is an example of the globalism that the, the radicals on the right are really wanting. They want the jobs. They want the industry. They want to have uh, free energy. 
self-sufficiency when it comes to oil, but ultimately when we build these huge pipelines across the continent, we're building the superstructure of the North American Union into place. We're doing it with the highways and with the power grid, and we're becoming one constituent national enterprise yeah. across the board. So ultimately, you have a lot of wealthy people going to Mexico to buy houses on the cheap, and you have a lot of the poor migrants from South America trying to push forward to get into the great jobs here in, in America, and there's the great settling. The, the deal that Trump signed into law, the United States, Mexico, and Canada deal, that replace NAFTA. And ultimately, you can see that these kind of large polemic treaties are coming into play. And the, the radical and floundering discombobulation of the Trump-Biden saga and the, the issue over the expose of how the globalists like to steer uh, elections and steal and shape politics. And you can see that the whole question of America's Republican and Democratic system of self-government is, is coming into, into question because people can't govern themselves. They can't even feed themselves. So many people are on welfare. So many people now are on COVID, unemployment, sitting home, sucking their thumbs, unable to find a way to take care of themselves. And so it's really just a nanny state that's being um, framed into place. In order to kind of continue this discussion, we need to learn more about the turn of the century and the history that's behind the, the generation of propaganda textbooks and what those textbooks are working so hard to obscure from view. So in order to bring that discussion up, we're going to go with G. Edward Griffith, and he's going to present this whole perspective of the, the uh, even though the, the British Empire was said once to be the greatest empire in the world and then it diminished, we can see that their influence became more subtle, more diplomatic, and more capitalistic in nature, controlling markets and mineral sources, and being the uh, major commerce when it comes to fiat currency and the, the, the Bank of London and the inner city of London and their clandestine hegemony over world markets. And without further ado, this is G. Edward Griffith. Let's listen to his point of view. The movement toward world collectivist government has been going on for quite a while. Uh, it's, it's impossible to establish its absolute origin, but it certainly was part of the literature at the turn of the last century. And there were groups and organizations forming uh, in various parts of the world at that time that had that as its goal. One of the most interesting groups was uh, one put together by Cecil Rhodes, who was formed by uh, his will when he passed away. His vast fortune went to the creation of a secret society, and actually what it was. He said, we've got to keep this a secret society. And uh, all of the Rhodes money went in that direction. Uh, it was from that that uh, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, sprang in this country. There were similar organizations and other uh, British dependencies. Uh, and uh, they all had as their goal the creation of a unified world government based on the model of collectivism. So there was this milieu of political and intellectual um, movement starting over a hundred years ago. But it certainly has gained momentum uh, through World War I, really got up to speed, and then finally in World War II, all of the major uh, players on the world scene were talking about world government. They tried to do the League of Nations, that failed. Finally, they created the United Nations, that stuck. And so now they're just trying to pump up the United Nations into the, the framework of the global government that they have always envisioned. And this has been a, a, a thing that goes beyond one generation. It's, it's transgenerational. 
other words, it's not just one person's vision. The people that started it are long gone, but the, those who inherited it continued this dream. To them, I'm sure they look at it as a, as a wonderful thing. They see it as uh, an end of nationhood, as it has been historically defined. They see that as advantageous, they say, because it'll put an end to war and so forth. And, um, and they can sell the idea as a great step toward uh, brotherhood and a unified globe and so forth. They use all of these things to make it sound good. But when you start examining the actual policies that they're instituting, it's not so hot. It's based on the principle of collectivism, as I've said several times. And that means it's all powerful government. It's a tyrannical government. It's the same kind of a system that Adolf Hitler had in mind. And we fought a war to destroy him and his system. The same kind of a system that uh, Joseph Stalin had in mind, and we fought a Cold War and did a lot of other things to make sure that that didn't happen. The same kind of a system that Mao Zedong had in mind, and Benito Mussolini, all of the great collectivists of history have had this unified global government based on the model of collectivism as their goal, and we fought against it until recently, now, we are actually the greatest uh, advocates of it ourselves. We don't call it uh, tyranny. We don't call it fascism or Nazism or communism. We have a better name for it. The name they have chosen is the New World Order. That's their favorite phrase for it. But when you examine its nature and its essence, it is a collectivist system, powerful government, little people at the bottom taking orders. So this is the concept. It's been under evolution for over a hundred years. It looks like it's coming within sight now. Uh, we've seen the nations of Europe uh, amalgamate into the European Union. The sovereignty of all of the European uh, nations has been pretty well lost now to the European Union. And they've always said that was a stepping stone toward the creation of a true world government, is to unite the smaller governments of the world first into regional groupings such as the European Union. They have one in mind for Asia and Africa, and now they're talking about doing the same on the North American continent, called the North American Union, and it'll be a merger of the United States, Mexico, and Canada, a process that they deny. I rather like that succinct analysis from G. Edward Griffin, and we'll, you have to, from time to time, go back to look at his writings and his lectures to learn more about what's going on in, in the world. And at this point, I just want to challenge you to take a, another step further into the mystery of, of these issues, and we have to take into consideration that uh, what Carol Quigley did, Professor Carol, Carol Quigley did, was um, in writing his book Tragedy and Hope, was to wake up the world to a dynamic conspiracy to shape a global empire and where the people are really just cannon fodder in the projection of their wars. And, and they, um, it's really obviously the projection of power from the classes, the money powers. And you can see that they're working really hard to create these, these uh, United Nations sectors. And the European Union being the first will become the technotronic model by which all the other nation states are expected to subsume into supranational world global governance structure. And we're expected to accept the, the will of our sovereigns and the elites over us. And, and it'll be an autocratic technotronic state rather than a monarchy. And a lot of peacekeeping troops. United Nations forces 
around the world, and the idea of a nation-state, a sovereign, independent, national enterprise will become something that, that they're obviously forcing to become an obsolete term. And as we move forward, this will become more and more explicitly clear and inalterably obvious. So as we're going forward, we're going to express more and more of our difficulty in elucidating this subject matter, because I can't sit here and read Carol Quigley's 800-page book to you, even though that's what your Glisman attempts to do. He tries to break down uh, the books, and, and I actually appreciate that work, because we can go in and listen to some of the important points in, in those pages when he reads them. But for our time's sake, we have to recognize that they built a, a clandestine, esoteric phalanx, a deeply rooted peer culture of chivalry, military sovereigns to so these princes are, whether it's under the Scottish Rite or whether they're old, the old uh, noblemen that you see running the European Union today. Men who like Herman von Rumpy, who were Knights of the Order of Malta, and who also were presidents of the European Commission. And you can see that the move towards globalism and to, towards world order, towards the United Nations, towards the North American Union, is a move of international polemic that you can see dictated from the Vatican. And so I invite you, like I said, to step forward and go deeper into these into this subject matter and work with us to learn uh, as a more, rather than an apprentice listener, to move deeper, deeper into these issues and become a sojourner with us into these very interesting and fascinating subject matter. And in order to go into the uh, the discussion where we have Jay Dyer up next, and he's going to discuss tragedy and hope a little bit here. And I like some of his suppositions and how he reads it and how many different levels there really were to tragedy and hope. So let's take a listen to his perspective. Talks. We were covering the movement into the Cold War period and the rise of the military-industrial complex, the merchants of death, that is the Rand Corporation, and all the Pentagon apparatuses, the rise of cybernetics and game theory, which Quigley predicts back in 1966. We talked about the rise of empirical philosophy and the use of quantification and number theory and game theory to essentially... Um, try to control the world, right? So if you can come up with algorithms and predictive structures by which you can attempt to outwit your opponent in any sense, be it uh, through geostrategic problems or be it through, um, you know, eventually down the road, uh, computer hacking from Quigley's vantage point, it all comes back to the ability to reorganize societies according to the technocratic model. And Quigley discusses this, as we said, explicitly, page 841, 842, 843, science is the new god. He talks about the rise of artificial intelligence and hence at the coming of transhumanism, and that this would kind of be the linchpin that would give the West the upper hand in the control of the globe. He even talks about radars, crystals, Werner von Braun, the V2 rockets, and all this. Moonraker type stuff on page 847. And for him, this is what constitutes the new age. It's an entire new era for humanity. Uh, and, it, and it all centers around technology and Quigley's analysis uh, and the rise of rulership by technocracy. That's something that the world has never seen before. That's what's new about all this. That's why it's the, the new age. And so there's a, a section 
dedicated to the bomb almighty, right? The, if you remember from Planet of the Apes, where they worship the bomb, the bomb almighty. That is somewhat the uh, the notion here, right? It's almost like the, the noble lie is translated into the perspective of the bomb, the A-bomb, the H-bomb, and supposedly, right, the ability to create this super weapon would, in effect, make its possessors godlike, right? If you have the ability to push a button and supposedly destroy an entire city or country or cut the planet in half or whatever the propaganda said about this bomb, then you are viewed as a god. And we don't know. We don't know the real potential and possibility of the nuke because there's never been an actual nuclear bomb that we know of detonated. You could debate the A-bomb and the H-bomb, but the supposed fully operational modern nuclear warhead has never been detonated. Now, Interesting, the character of Dr. Teller comes into place, and we know that Dr. Teller is the father of atmospheric aerosol engineering, chemtrails, spraying, and so forth. And under the guidance of Alexander Sachs, I believe it was Alexander, yeah, the banker, the committee that goes to FDR to use Teller is essentially established by a banker. It's, it's curious. Why, why is the atomic bomb research being organized by a banker and fronted by Edward Teller. Well, they go to FDR and say, we got to have this program, we got to come up with this super weapon. And of course, this is the birth of the highly compartmentalized Manhattan Project. Only 12 people actually know, knew at this time, at least, what the Manhattan Project was, according to Quigley on 856. Now, I've argued that it does seem to be a kind of re-engineering of the entire biosphere, and that's why it does include things like atmospheric engineering and aerosol spraying and so forth, which we do see nowadays. You know, chemtrails, I believe, are real. As a, that is a real program. People from the CIA, CFR, they've talked about it openly. People in the Obama administration, maybe John Holdren has talked about it openly. Um, so it's not a conspiracy theory. Now, what exactly the ultimate goal is, of course, of the, of the atmospheric geoengineering is, is, I guess, somewhat of a debate, because it's hard to figure out under the cloak of all their talk of climate change what they're really up to. You know, are they just manipulating the climate, controlling the weather, or influencing the weather, I should say? I don't know. But we have the PSYOP, as we said before, of a lot of these atomic uh, spy stories quickly brings it up again. A lot of these uh, spy stories are created by the FBI and Hollywood to aid in the patriotism of the FBI, basically. Now, that's not to say there were no cases of Russian espionage or Soviet espionage, but uh, they were few and far between in the 1945 to 50 period, according to Quigley. And what is the uh, the goal? Well, actually, on page 864, Quigley admits that a lot of the propaganda about the A-bomb was actually a psychological warfare operation against Eurasia. And so he mentions this as well. Again, on the next page, H-65, not just the Soviets, but on essentially the whole region to scare the pants off of everybody. But it wasn't just them. Quigley doesn't really mention the fact that uh, it's the U.S. as well. 
or the target population that is also terrified by the Great Bomb. Of course, Quigley's not going to mention that. He's not going to say that his overlords actually terrorize the U.S. population. Oh, no, no. Uh, we mentioned rule by expert, the managerial society, numbered man, if you've seen The Prisoner, in my analysis of the 60s cult British spy show, The Prisoner. Neo-feudalism to replace the older Renaissance conceptions of what it was to be a nation-state, 867. And what would be the means by which we would transition to this global order, this bipolar order during this period? Well, the threat of international communism. The Cold War is what would give rise to international security through the creation of the UN Security Council for the monitoring of nukes, the nukes that are everywhere, everywhere, nukes are just black market everywhere. Watch out. On page 869, we have great admission of the alteration in covert operations and regime changes. Uh, and what takes over in this period, we're now entering into the superpower period, he calls it, uh, of the U.S. Uh, and the Soviet Empire. And he says, I'll quote, Under the umbrella of the nuclear stalemate, the boundaries of the old states were all shattered by guerrilla conflicts. These were supported by outsiders. Outside governments subsidized murders and revolts. The Russians did it in Iraq in 1958. Nasser of Egypt did it in Jordan, Syria, and Yemen and elsewhere in the whole period of 1953, as the CIA did in several places, in Iran in 1953, Guatemala in uh, 1954, and if you read uh, Servando Gonzalez's book, Psychological Warfare in the New World Order, he will have you a list of dozens of places where the CIA did it. Uh, very unsuccessfully, Quigley says, in Cuba, Bay of Pigs, although, again, I would refer one to Servando's book on that to get the real scoop very much more reasonable scoop about what happened to Bay of Pig. Um, under the Cold War umbrella, small groups or areas can obtain recognition as states without any need to demonstrate traditional characteristics of what statehood was. And this is why we're calling this period a new feudal, neo-feudalism, right? I like that particular section. I think that it's fascinating that Carol Quigley was able to so successfully predict the technotronic state and the use of computers. I mean, we're going back to the 1950s, but they were already able to uh, look forward and scale up the ability for uh, computers to be to create an absolute cyber state, and, a, and the technotronic state was something that they could forecast very clearly, and uh, with the accompanying psychological ops. And he breaks down. It's a very it's it's a thousand page book practically, and he breaks down decade by decade the periods that the internationalist cause would use different political models to break down and to try to dissolve national sovereignty around the world. And that's why they would press communism so hard and finance it, even though it was a bankrupt and failed propaganda mechanism. They were able to, they kept financing communism to pursue its bloody course. 
And on the outside of that, they funded guerrilla fighters to come in and to deal violently with countries who are being destabilized in this conflict with this imaginary conflict with communism. So you can see that Carol Quigley was one of the insiders and one of the, the uh, actually brain children, the actual uh, controllers and ideological controllers of the uh, New World Order. So it's fascinating that he actually wrote the book exposing it and there's purposes behind that. So as we're going forward, I just invite you to take a deeper look at what this content is. It's not so surface, it's not so simple or so easily dismissed either. It's something that we have to consider and we have to work out as we're moving forward and educating ourselves. And I think it's crucial to go back into this, into you know, now that we're into these episodes and we're, we're learning about new things and the, the depth of the secrecy and the incredible level of subversion that was taking place and being financed on an intellectual and academic basis to in order to basically subvert the world. And you can you have to recognize that, that Ruskin and uh, men like Rhodes were the thinkers who were going to supply the intellectual groundwork for communism to come after. And that's ultimately what would happen. To reiterate, again, as we're moving forward, we can see that the the expansion of the Cecil Rhodes fortune and at his death would finance and build enormous um, support behind the framework of secret societies and Freemasonic lodges and esoteric uh, mystery schools, if you will, that were already in place for a long time and represented the elite power structure and the elite religio-cultic practice and the praxis of the internationalists, if you will. And you got to remember that the the, the Romanists are imbibed with all kinds of different idol worship and paganism, having a whole series of saints that they pray to. Um, it's not different than the ancient Roman pantheon when they would pray to um, the gods of Egypt and Isis and Jupiter and Mars and all the different gods that controlled uh, the elements and, and the, um, the, the the fates and the fortunes that they that they believed in. And it's really nothing to, different from today. In, in Romanism, they have all kinds of different saints, uh, Holy Saints Day, and they have all kinds of different communion of the saints. And so there's all these different religious figures and divine figures in the stratosphere of the heavens that they pay attention to and communicate with. They pray to Mary. Uh, and so they're given to all kinds of these different, this different kind of paganism. So it's not surprising when we see the kind of um, Pythagorean cultism and the kind of Mithraic practices that were built in synthetically into the Roman Catholic Church being practices that they continue on. Just like we said before, the idol or the statue, the bronze statue of St. Peter in the Vatican was once the idol by which they, uh, the Romans would, would offer sacrifices to Janus and to Jupiter, uh, that is, and, and Jupiter being a pagan god. And of course, when uh, the kind of Christian ideas took over, they would just, the syncretism of the cult priestcraft there in Rome would just take the old god and switch names and everyone would be praying to St. Peter. So this is the kind of elastic idolatry that you see coming out of Romanism. And so we're not surprised to that, um, that they don't hold the same Judeo-Christian uh, biblical values that uh, maybe perhaps the Jews care, have, or you might see practice in Amish families or mainline Baptist Christian families here in the U.S. Um, they don't necessarily have a Santa Claus with reindeer bring Christmas on winter solstice. You see, you follow? So as we're going forward, we have more to say about this. So let's listen to this fascinating article here called Origins of Religionism. And they discuss, this is part 9 of 10, they discuss the issue of the secret society 
and the massive financial donation of Cecil Rhodes to the esoteric schools that made them so prolific and so elite, so uh, rich and globalist today, because they had every intention of building up the World Bank, and they had every intention of building the United Nations, and that was they're building structures uh, uh, that are that are moving towards a global governance. Although rulers throughout the ages have dreamed of a global empire, the quest for a global federation did not begin in earnest until Victorian Britain's roundtable groups proposed a commonwealth of nations. Today the commonwealth is known as merely a form of nations formerly administered by the British Empire, but it originally was meant to be something far greater, as it started the drive toward today's regional framework. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown, I heard that call clarified by a professor named Carol Quigley. Carol Quigley was Rhodes Scholar President Bill Clinton's globalist mentor as a noted history professor at Washington's Georgetown University when Clinton was a student there. Quigley detailed the development and objectives of the Roundtable Groups as part of his voluminous macro-historical text published in 1966, Tragedy and Hope, as follows. Cecil Rhodes fervently exploited the diamond and gold fields of South Africa. With financial support from Lord Rothschild and Alfred Bate, he was able to monopolize the diamond mines of South Africa as the Beers Consolidated Mines. In the middle 1890s, Rhodes had a personal income which was spent so freely for his mysterious purposes. These purposes centered on his desire to federate the English-speaking peoples and to bring all the habitable portions of the world under their control. For this purpose, Rhodes left part of his great fortune to found the Rhodes Scholarships at Oxford in order to spread the English ruling class tradition throughout the English-speaking world. Rhodes and William T. Steed organized a secret society of which Arthur Lord Balfour, Lord Rothschild, and others were listed as potential members of a circle of initiates, while there was to be an outer circle known as the Association of Helpers, later organized by Alfred Milner as the Roundtable Organization. In 1909 through 1913, they organized semi-secret groups known as Roundtable Troops. In 1919, they founded the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House. Similar institutes of international affairs were established in the chief British dominions and in the United States, where it is known as the Council on Foreign Relations. Carol Quigley's research as a historian at Georgetown and Harvard, and his enthusiasm for the globalist cause, gained the confidence of sources within this movement in the United States. These sources allowed Quigley access to the historical records that were cited in Tragedy and Hope. Quigley's book was not meant to be an expose of the nefarious activities of the Council on Foreign Relations, or CFR, or its part in the semi-secret Anglophile network, but as a record for posterity of what he believed to be their grand effort, as he explained. I know of the operation of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have, for much of my life, been close to it and many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, but in general my chief difference of opinion 
is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. Uh, but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the State Department. Uh, we get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have this far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing. And uh... It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. Quickly wrote that the roundtablers would allow portions of the British Empire, presumably Canada among others, to become part of a greater American Union in return for U.S. participation in their World Federation. From 1884 to about 1915, the members of this group worked valiantly to extend the British Empire and to organize it in a federal system. They also hoped to bring the United States into this organization to whatever degree was possible. Steed was able to get Rhodes to accept, in principle, a solution which might have made Washington the capital of the whole organization, or allow parts of the empire to become states of the American Union. It is not surprising, therefore, that today's call for a North American community, being advanced by executive fiat with the U.S.-Canada Beyond the Border Agreement and its North American security perimeter, is being promoted chiefly by the Council on Foreign Relations and its representatives. Neither is it surprising that Rhodes scholar Bill Clinton would be groomed by that globalist institution to promote the pushing of the world's independent nations into an economic-political network of interdependence and integration. As fellow globalist and CFR spokesman Richard Gardner wrote in the CFR journal Foreign Affairs in April 1974 entitled the hard road to world order. The globalist network would have to make an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece. Clinton's audacious ego is certainly consistent with the Rhodes Roundtable tradition. The extent to which the Roundtable moguls were full of themselves was revealed in their audacity to believe that their English ruling class had assumed divine authority to rule a global federation. All right, as we're moving forward here, I'm trying to piece together the puzzle. And really, the Cecil Rhodes Secret Society has everything to do with the development later on of the Pilgrim Society. And we're getting to re ready to read a little section of that. And we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to put this in there to try to make, um, make some context for where we're going here and how we're trying to expose something that's uh, it's very hard to really catch a glimpse of. So this is a book called The Pilgrim Society, and this is page 38. Such sentiments concerning the Pilgrim Fathers were consistent with what Joseph Conforti has termed a new politicized meaning to the word pilgrim, which emerged in the early 19th century, large distinct from religious connotations pilgrim, and Pilgrim Fathers connoted the pioneering status of New England's founders, the old comers were now imagined as the pioneers of civil and religious liberty in America. This is what James Sheffield, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, meant when he, he at the Pilgrim Society's 25th anniversary dinner in 1928, spoke of the quote-unquote fundamental principles of government which the Pilgrim Fathers had brought to America from England. And he said that he believed that the spirit of the pilgrimage rests with the society. This chapter examines the founding of the Pilgrim Society and the development of its early aims and activities, which were formulated amidst those bright lights of elite London and New York. 
It does so across five sections. The first section traces the origins of the society and establishes precisely who was responsible for its foundation. It's also consider why people are motivated to become involved with the society in the first place. The second section examines how the society's membership was constituted and what the processes were involved in joining. The third section places the society in the context of the elite associational cultures of London and New York. It does so with a reference to a variety of other clubs, including some with similar aims to those of the pilgrims. The fourth section looks in greater detail at some internal debates had by both the society in relation to how best to achieve its aims. Meanwhile, the final section examines the ways in which the pilgrims engendered links with diplomatic officials and why this meant the society was more successful more quickly than other of its contemporaries. The development of the pilgrims. The improvement in Anglo-American relations at the turn of the 19th and 20th century was notated in 1903 by the London Times in its coverage of one of the first meetings of the Pilgrim Society in New York, an association which the paper regarded as the sign of the change which has taken place and a pleasant means of extending its scope and of promoting its continuance. While the rapprochement was often articulated in the rhetoric of Anglo-Saxonism, the work of the Pilgrims, according to the Times, was also about bringing Britain and the U.S. together as the two great, quote-unquote, great manufacturers and traders of the world, and therefore the great advocates of international peace. So we'll just leave off the document right now and just point out that the whole gist is about bringing Britain and the U.S. together as the two great you know, manufacturers and traders and such and such. So that's the, the gist of the Pilgrim Society. There's a branch in the U.S., there's a branch also in Britain, and it comes out of this um, great move of the, the Lord Milner, Lord Balfour, um, led by the super wealthy among these wealthy men, the super wealthy Cecil Rhodes with Lord Rothschild at the time, and they've set forth to create this super society, having a, a, an understanding of all other societies and, and Freemason orders in the world. This super society would be a way to create a, uh, a hegemony, a, a geopolitical hegemony across the Atlantic uh, with these powers at their disposal. So let's return now to the, the, uh, the document. Two great manufacturers and traders of the world, and therefore the two great advocates of international peace, which makes me think of the United Nations, quote-unquote. And it had been amidst this milieu of English-speaking rapprochement and international friendship that the Pilgrim Society was first established in London the year before in 1902. The society was founded with an explicit aim to increase and perpetuate the president friendly relations between the peoples of the two countries, quote-unquote. It was established across the summer of 1902, following meetings held by the city's Carlton Hotel. The society's first function was a banquet to Lord Roberts at the Carlton Hotel on 8th, the 8th of August, the day before the coronation of King Edward VII. Harry Bertain later recalled that the coronation had kept quote-unquote, kept very many distinguished people in London, which was helpful for the securing the attendance of such people for the society's first function. 
Roberts welcome the Pilgrims, American guests as brothers of the same stock, quote-unquote, who share all the proud traditions of the Anglo-Saxon race. The uh, New York branch was founded in January 1903, so this is a year after, subsequently, and held its first recording meeting on the 9th of January. Speaking at the Society's first public function in New York a few days previously, which was in fact done under the auspices of the existing London branch, founding member and senior British naval commander Charles Beresford highlighted what he believed were the benefits of Anglo-American friendship, namely that it would quote-unquote help to maintain the peace of the world, which if assured will give a trading and commercial century. Beresford was a proponent of the open door policy regarding trade with China and following a visit to both China and the U.S. in 1899, partially influenced U.S. Secretary of State John Hayes formulation of his open door notes. The underlying, this underlines that the motivation be, behind the support for improved Anglo-American relations was a commercial aspect. The creation of the was a natural development for the organization with the aim of promoting transatlantic links. With New York, such an important point of arrival for many travelers, the choice of the city as a locus for pilgrims. Branch was partly motivated for the belief that the society's role was to facilitate pilgrimages, or as the Britain's words, the peregrinating of elite individuals between the two countries. As such, it was hoped that international amity would be served by the personal experience of travel and social intercourse. Each branch of the pilgrims had its own executive committee, which usually met once a month under the leadership of a chairman. The British pilgrims' first chairman was William Sinclair, the Archdeacon of London, while the first chairman of the American Pilgrims was a lawyer named Lindsey Russell. Russell was originally from North Carolina and was associated with legal firms in both New York and London. He later said that he had been inspired to work towards Anglo-American friendship partly because he believed in this. So we'll just leave it off right there. I'll try to add this information here. It goes on to say later, after the First World War, Russell was also chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, a group founded in 1918 to promote international peace and commerce. So this document, I'll try to add it in there. I don't have the entire the entire thing here, but I do have uh, several pieces of it um, that I wanted to just add in there and just read into our, our uh, episode here. And it goes to the point that the separation and the challenge of national sovereignty that the Declaration of Independence has offered to the British Crown has, is, is something that's slowly being degraded and being removed. And we have to understand that that's part of the, the major equation of what we're seeing take place in America today. So I would point out that the Skull and Bones Society at Yale that had been so instrumental and even had achieved several presidencies uh, and, and achieved immediate power and it was even responsible for creating the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association and other powerful organs within the American Department of State and within the medical bureaucracy of the nation were created by Skull and Bonesmen. And you have to recognize that by 1903, the power center had already shifted by the time the Pilgrim Society is being put into place. And so ultimately, the founding member of, of Skull and Bones was William Russell. So it's fitting that 
another man from the Russell family would be the man to start the American branch of the Pilgrim Society. I think it's fascinating that we find the Russell name there. And it was the Russell family, among many others, who, who is with their shipping lines and their, their seafaring frigates that would bring in tons and tons of opium into China and leave with the silver payments. Of, and it was one of their functions within the, the scheme of things within the British Empire. And they made their fortunes running opium into into China in the first and second opium wars, um, and so that's really how we see the the British Empire um, submitting the Chinese nation and the Chinese people to the new underlying world order that was rising and, and, the, and the power of it. And ultimately, today that communist state is really an outcropping of the great Hegelian geopolitical design and the Hegelian a dialectic process that they're setting on the world stage by where they're using these different ideological, political drives to create spheres of conflict around the world. So I want to introduce this kind of fringe radio network broadcast by this fella. Uh, it's the Oddcast uh, podcast. I don't really listen to it very often. Uh, I'm not interested in Bigfoot. Some of their other contributors have things that are less interesting to hear about. But on this particular occasion... They're discussing the the little-known Pilgrim Society and how it ties to Cecil Rhodes and, and the Milner, Lord Milner uh, Society of Roundtables. This, in order to make the subject less murky, and, and you can see that he's been reading on these topics, and he kind of, um, in a rudimentary way, expresses his ideas of, of what it all means, and you can see um, just by the perspective that he has that we're dealing with something that's very, very secret and, and very powerful. Cursory introduction to the Pilgrim Society and the theory that perhaps the crown still controls America or has been trying to take complete control of America for a very long time. This is a conspiracy I never gave much thought to until recently because it just seems so silly because, you know, we see the Brits, the British government, even the military and the members of parliament fighting and it's kind of silly really no sillier than our pretend government and what they do but you know they look fairly weak and they kind of come across as weak and I think that that could be because perhaps they really don't even have that much power and it is a farce and it is much to do about political theater and keeping the citizens into thinking that they have a government but yet it's just controlled by these monopoly corporations who are partnered up with the government and these bankers and whatnot. So anyway, I think if we think about it in that way, it starts to kind of make sense. And also, you hear it's always the Jesuits, the Jesuits, or the Zionists, the Zionists. Well, of course, it is those groups, and they are a part of this whole thing, but there's many other groups as well, but they all seem to have similar goals, and I think that they perhaps are willing and have been willing to work together in some instances for common goals and the common good of their institutions and their organizations, and they know that they'll have a place in this new world order if it ever comes to fruition, which seems to be closer than ever, and really, if you think about the way everything's structured and how long these groups have been around, especially when you're talking about the Roads Roundtables, which started, you know, I read on my Patreon quotes from the last will and testament of Cecil Rhodes, which was written the year he died. I think W.T. Stead had 
began to uh, write that several years before Cecil Rhodes died, but he said in 1877, while Cecil Rhodes was at Oxford University, he was writing part of these plans to form these secret societies to take over the world. And so you have to think that this plan has been underway for a very long time. Of course, Cecil Rhodes wasn't the first to want to take over the world. There's been others, but he was probably the smartest. And they have been doing it in increments, you know, incrementally for years and years, a little bit at a time. And really, they pulled the wool over the people's eyes for so very long now. I mean, trying to tell, you know, some regular person about this whole Rhodes plan and the Rhodes roundtables and how this whole history is back there in the background that schools don't teach and how these powerful groups have been behind all these wars and these crises and different things like that. I mean, you cannot get through to people because they've just, they, they can't comprehend these things. But if there was one group, if there was one, you know, movement that had a pretty good reason and the power and the knowledge to take over the world and create this conspiracy, of course it would be the British government because they had had years and years to perfect these type of things in other parts of the world. We have to remember that Cecil Rhodes was partially funded by the Rothschilds, yes, to go to Rhodesia, to South Africa, to mine for the gold and the diamonds, but also partly by the East India Company, which was a British company who was famous for getting many people hooked on opium, including the Chinese and the Indians and different people like that. And if you read here in the Encyclopedia Britannica.com, they're kind of making it seem like, well, you know, the uh, Brits had to do this, the British government, because there was this trade imbalance. And so they had to sell this opium to China to make up for the trade deficit. You know, and of course, it's all uh, about money. The love of money is the root of all evil. So you have to understand that Cecil Rhodes was partially funded by them. But not only that, as uh, Michael McKibben has pointed out, Rhodes was also blessed by the crown. And um, McKibben, I haven't looked into it, even says that he has proof from the documents that he's found that Cecil Rhodes was indeed on the Queen's Privy Council. So he had full blessings, and he was probably partially funded by the King and Queen as well. And of course, that leads to all of his high-profile friends and how they formed the Society of the Elect. And, of course, eventually, after Rhodes died, the Pilgrim Society. Now, I have a book that I've gotten over the last week, and it is The Pilgrims, The Pilgrim Society of the United States. And that book is kind of like your whitewashed normie history of the pilgrims written by someone that they probably hired to do it. Uh, let's see. Let's look at her name here. It's an interesting book, and it's pretty easy to find. Uh, she's written two of them, one on the British uh, version of the uh, pilgrims. Her name is Anne Pimlot Baker. 
So one of the good things about it, though, it only tells the good side of the pilgrims and the dinner societies and all that, the dinner meetings and banquets and all that. But it has lists of names of all these guys. And I just opened up to a random page here, and you've got Grover Cleveland in there, uh, Henry Britton, who was a big player in there, the Prince of Wales, Thomas Lamont, Lord Halifax. I mean, it's unbelievable. So many presidents and ambassadors. So that was one of the huge themes. The pilgrims, when a new ambassador to either the UK or the US would be installed, he his first speech would be at the Pilgrim Society. So if it, he was the new ambassador to the United States from the UK, he would go over and speak in the United States in front of those pilgrims and vice versa. So men of great stature and wealth and power have been Pilgrim Society members. And you can see in the book, the whitewashed book, that that is true. So Carol Quigley here from Tragedy and Hope in page 950 he says, and this is under chapter American Confusions, he says this myth, and he's talking about this myth of this group that's taken over the government or trying to take over the government. This myth, like all fables, does in fact have a modicum of truth. There does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups, and frequently does. I know of these operations and this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, notably to its belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. century in England with powerful help from a few American families who believed that the separation of the two countries had been the worst event in human history and they wanted to work toward a long-term reintegration of, of Britain, the whole English-speaking world as one country. That was their uh, goal of the, of the agenda. The values that had been forged by the British upper classes, the kind of society that they had tempered and designed, could become the clothing for the entire globe, but it would take time. I mean, one of the big things would be a common currency and a common language, but they knew that would be a long way off. So they began by setting up 23 
bases all over the planet. Now, all those bases are still in business. The one in the United States is right up on 66th Street. It's called the Council on Foreign Relations. And they have different names in different places. But the idea was to draw into that club the best, the brightest, and the most influential people from the entire country, from all races and all walks of life, and to use those people as the resonator of the idea of globalization. Well, I did. I sent out on a quest to find out everything I could about them. And uh, in May of 1979, I went to a university speech at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, given by the then British ambassador to the UN, Sir Ivor Seward Richard, S-E-W-A-R-D was his male name. And it turned out that his maternal grandfather was our Secretary of State, William Seward, who made the Alaska Purchase from Russia in 1867. Now, the Pilgrim Society represents the last great secret of modern history. It represents history's greatest influence network. It represents history's biggest investment trust. It represents the exploitative dynastic families of the centuries old worldwide British Empire who amalgamated in this nearly unknown group with the so-called robber barons of the 19th century in railroads, oil, coal, steel, banking, land, ocean-going shipping. And the person who had the inspiration to form this organization was Cecil Rhodes, who formed the Golden Diamond Trust in South Africa. And he also created the Rhodes Scholars. Well, it's always been members of the Pilgrims Society as trustees of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford, England, who control the Rhodes Scholars. And here's a little quote from the Review of Reviews, New York, May 1902, pages 556 to 559. I'm not going to read it all, just a little bit. The only thing feasible to carry this idea out is a secret society gradually absorbing the wealth of the world to be devoted to such an object, and that object reuniting the United States and Great Britain as a base for world government. There is Hirsch with 20 millions very soon across the unknown borders, struggling in the dark to know what to do with his money. And so one might go on ad infinitum. What a scope and what a horizon of work for the next two centuries, the best energies of the best people in the world. Perfectly feasible, but needing an organization. For it is impossible for one human atom to contemplate anything, much less such an idea as this, requiring the devotion of the best souls of the next 200 years. There are three essentials. One, the plan duly weighed and agreed to. Two, the first organization. Three, the seizure of the wealth necessary, end quote. Of the Rhodes scholars, Rhodes himself declared, I am on the lookout for those who will do the governing of the nations in the years that are to come. Then there was a book in 1946 called uh, The Empire of the City, World Superstate, privately published, page nine we find 
the Pilgrims Society described as the most powerful international society on earth. The Pilgrims is so wrapped in silence that few Americans know even of its existence since 1903. There was a book put out officially by the society in London in 1943, Pilgrim Partners, 40 Years of British-American Fellowship, and on page 85 he said the cooperation of many minds has been necessary to give the pilgrims the assured position the society occupies what is their assured position the world fiat money power now keep in mind this is 11 years before bilderberg even existed the christian science monitor april 19 1941 page four anglo-american pilgrims progress stated to go through the list would reveal a dossier of some of the greatest men of our time I mentioned Gary Allen. He also had something in American Opinion Magazine, September 1970, page 15. He says, The elitist Pilgrim Society seeks to merge the United States into the British Commonwealth as a base for world government. The major international banking firms, that is, billion banks, on both sides of the Atlantic are well represented in the Pilgrim Society. Uh, that article was titled, A Look at Establishment Newspapers. He had a follow-up about Teleslick television networks in October of that year, 1970. He said, the Pilgrim Society, sometimes called the world's most secret organization, has as its goal the reuniting of England and America. And later in that article, he says, the super-secret Pilgrim Society, whose official logo is entwined American and British flags, is dedicated to merging Britain and America. I found an Italian website that said... The Pilgrims Society remained hidden until relatively recent years to identify the apex of power. In testimony delivered in the House of Representatives of the U.S. Congress on August 19, 1940 by Montana Congressman Thorkelson, a silver advocate, regarding the Pilgrims Society and its intent to merge us into a British-controlled world empire, stated this. There are several curious things about these pilgrim functions. In the first place, there is present at these dinners an array of notables, such as would be difficult to bring together under one roof for any other purpose and by any other society. This again was 14 years before Bilderberg even existed. Congressman Thorkelson, in the same discourse, referred to an address by Joseph H. Choate, Vanderbilt family operative, big railroad dynasty, one of the founders of the Pilgrims organization, as saying that those who would many years later celebrate the start of the second century of the Pilgrims Society in 2003, quote, will have cause to bless their fathers that they founded this society and kept the world on the right track. So I just had to let that last part just play out so we could kind of get a complete perspective on where they're coming from with their ideas. And it's really just to give you a more informed picture of the world and to, for you to understand the kind of framework that these internationalists are, are moving along. They're really they're building the, the construct of international law and the framework for a technological integration of a global mandate. And they're doing it all from this, um, the aftermath of World War II and the United Nations and this kind of prerogative of protecting ourselves against the dangers of nuclear weapons, which, you know, so that, that's the kind of the psychological warfare 
and the way to shape and ultimately formulate the thinking within societies and to give them the great terrors by which they, they should fear in their dreams and, and so ultimately this this idea of the Cold War and the, the danger of nuclear weapons was something the the, the, the terror and the, the arms race and the buildup of the military industrial complex was more useful to them than the actual prospect of using and, and setting off nuclear weapons in different areas of the world for different purposes. Setting off a weapon, a nuclear weapon in the world wouldn't necessarily serve the purpose of winning a war or even overcoming an enemy. But the idea was to get people to hide under the desks with new, you know, atomic bomb drills and to just be to scare the daylights out of them to cultivate and shape their ability to think. I think that's really the, the, the main advantage that they were, they were seeking to, to, to have. And these are the kind of ideas that Carol Quigley elucidated, and his book was, was masterful. And it's profound that he felt the need to reveal that to the world, and I think that you should check it out. And in order to really get a better understanding too let's listen to some more this this fellow here in this uh, in the podcast presentation is going to uh, give us some readings by charles savoy so i thought we should listen to that and i'm going to skip the intro there but i will comment on the the logo of the pilgrims and they have a man riding a horse he almost looks like a priest and he behind him has a giant eagle which represents America. And then beside him, walking beside the horse, he has a lion, which represents Britain. And underneath it, in Latin, it says, Hic et ubique, which means here and everywhere. But Charles says, This secret one, or society, which sprang into existence a few months after Rose's death, is the only organization that answers to the descriptions conceptualizing it in the rarely seen article buried deep on unfrequented library shelves. Notice they admitted to trying to recruit into their ranks wealthy men and take control over the fortunes after their death for their globalist vision. I skipped that part. Their definition of uncivilized parts of the world includes any areas they wish to bring under control by means of World War One, World War Two, regional wars, and the Third World War, which I think is on us now, and I believe it is COVID, but he says, still to come. He wrote this several years ago, by the way. They speak of their judgment that certain nations must depart, meaning cease to exist as sovereign states. That includes all of South America with its silver-producing belts. This presentation won't try to convince the reader that their global reach is still an influence that will override all others, such as China and Russia. They unquestionably do possess the means to start World War III. Is that influence enough? There's no way to know, but it should be supposed that in exporting America's industrial base overseas, they retain ownership and hold vast assets elsewhere. The effort is to convince you of their domestic control over these United States, and by extension, Canada, and if the northern American Union, North American Union materializes, Mexico as well. There is no threat to your gold and silver ownership remotely as severe as that presented by the Pilgrim Society of the United States based in New York City. You guys have heard me talk about the uh, North American Union that uh, Bill Weld and Heidi Cruz put together for the Council on Foreign Relations. I think it was around 2008, but it might have been a little bit earlier than that. I know it was under 
George W. Bush. What a scope and what a horizon of work for the next two centuries. The best energies of the best people in the world. Perfectly feasible, but needing an organization. For it is impossible for one human atom to contemplate anything. Much less such an idea requiring the devotion of the best souls of the next 200 years. There are three essentials. Number one, the plan duly weighed and agreed. Number two, the first organization. Number three, the seizure of the wealth necessary. It says here on page 557, they admit that the year 2002 might be the halfway point for their dream of global Anglophile domination. That's pretty close to 9-11, isn't it? Best souls means most conspiratorial minds. First organization means the Pilgrim Society of London and New York and the seizure of the wealth necessary. Now he goes on to say that the seizure of the wealth necessary means many planned disasters caused by government actions negatively impacting the wealth of non-members and those outside the ranks of such unofficial subsidiary organizations as the Council on Foreign Relations, which has long served as the staffing agency for multiple presidential administrations, especially Joe Biden. The seizure of the wealth necessary means many particulars. The First World War, Britain's attack on the world's silver money system, starting in India in 1926 with the decision of the Royal Commission on Indian Currency. The crash of 1929, facilitated by the Federal Reserve policies, the Great Depression caused by Britain's attack on silver. Britain's attack on gold in September 1931, exacerbating the Depression, seizing gold from American citizens in March 1933, and seizing silver in August 1934 to the extent of 113,031,000 silver ounces driving China off its silver standard as of November 3, 1935, through the Silver Purchase Act of 1934. FDR's socialist federal agencies, the Second World War, the founding of the United Nations, the Korean War, the ending of silver coinage by the mid-1960s, the Vietnam War, its war manufacturers' windfalls, and all the ensuing major financial dislocations since that time to the crushing of the Hunt Arab silver play in January 1980 to today's mortgage crisis. Yes, this was a while back, around 2008, I think, forcing the middle class into apartments, feudalism, exploration of industry and jobs, reduced standard of living, Food and Drug Administration Tyranny, the Anticipation of Hyperinflation, and Concerns Over the Potential Federal Nationalization of Precious Metals. He goes on to say, It is so important to exert against the last, eventually, that I present this essay. To place this specific elitist organization on public notice that they are now known, a partial summary record of their past attacks on gold and silver money and ownership, and a partial list of specific identified Pilgrim Society members involved over the years, acting to suppress gold and silver as money and against the commodity prices of each, and acting against the citizen ownership of both. And then it says here, on pages 
557 and 558, his original conception of his will was to leave the whole of his property without any restrictions to be administered by the sole discretion of the three personal friends. He's talking about Cecil Rhodes, of course. As for eight years, I was one of the three to whom his millions were left in joint tenancy. I have perhaps as good an opportunity of knowing his mind on the matter as anyone. It was while on board the steamer, midway between Cape Town and England, that the idea flashed into his mind of superseding his previous will by another, in which part of his wealth would be set up for administration by trustees for educational purposes. Of course, there comes the Rhodes Scholarships. When he first told me about it, the scheme was limited to British colonies. It is admirable, I said, but would it not be still better if you could extend it so as to bring the Americans into it? Mr. Rhodes doubted whether his estate would bear such an extension, with which, in principle, he entirely concurred. Further examination satisfied him that it could be done, and accordingly, the will contains the provisions by which every American state is offered two scholarships tenable for three years. The person speaking was William T. Stead, Pilgrim Society, whom Lord Norcliffe, Pilgrim Society, described as the greatest living journalist. Page 45, Pilgrims and Pioneers, which features no year of publication, but is an early to mid-1930s production by Sir Henry Britton, founding member of the Pilgrim Society. See chapter 10 of this scarce volume called We Come Into Being, pages 103 and 153. Again, that is called Pilgrims and Pioneers, and I think I found a part of that book on a Tragedy and Hope's website, and I'll put that in the show notes here. So it goes on to say here, I doubt whether Mr. Rhodes quite realized that by such an arrangement, Americans would receive 50% more of his benefaction than British colonists. This, however, will probably soon be rectified by his executors, who have absolutely unrestricted ownership of the residue right there we'll just really for the sake of time just pause and put a pin in that and as we're moving forward we're really able to now display how the soft diplomacy and the soft imperialism of the british empire is coming into play they have really given they lost nothing of their holdings, and through international treaties and international obligations and organizations like the UN, they're able to work with other international entities in order to create this Atlantean community. So you have the Chatham House, you have the Council for Foreign Relations, and you can see the, the work of the British MI6 intelligence operations behind the Skull and Bones fraternity there in Yale, and how ultimately they worked together in World War II. And behind the scenes was their occult order of Malta, and they were Knights of Malta who were high-level Knights of Malta who were operating in order to make sure that the enemies of the Pope in Europe were being decimated by the military operations in World War II. As we begin to really kind of dig into the subject a little bit, we're going to turn again to a reading of the book Code Word Barbalon, and I think this might be part 66, and we're with York Glisman again, and he's going to read some of the interesting documentation of the Rhodes Roundtable Society. So let's listen to some more about that. Uh, it's, it's, it's called The Rhodes Gang, Instruments of the Roundtable. It starts with a 
with a quote from Jesuit professor Carol Quigley, who was at Georgetown University and wrote several books. Among one is the most known, that is um, Tragedy and Hope, of course. And his quote reads, I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years, unquote. The astute reader cannot but recognize the source and purpose of the Rolls-Milner plot. Let us examine this Orwellian-like plan more closely. We learn from Professor Quigley and the Chicago Tribune <clears throat> that the following well-known international organizations or network, most of which are secretive organizations, were set up under the Rolls-Milner scheme. And now comes a little summary of two, four, six, eight, nine, ten different um, quote-unquote secret organizations, not all that secret, because it's, of course, it starts with the Times, which is a very well-known American magazine and no secret society, and it ends with the United Nations, which actually is a secret society, but so out in the open that everybody only knows the exoteric teaching mm, of it, yes. and nobody knows the esoteric teaching. Good point here. Now I made it. Yeah, I made a little uh, a, a little remark to Brett in the beginning of our phone call that I said I want to start reading a little bit of the book from Eric John Phelps, Vatican Assassins. In the beginning of this book, that's why I'm still sitting at my computer and not outside on the terrace. Well, I will go to the terrace in an instant. But um, for reading this year, I need to be on the computer because Vatican Assassins I have on my computer as a PDF and. One of these secretive organizations that he sets up, that were set up under the Rhodes-Milner scheme, starts with the Times. Now, the Times was founded by Henry Luce, okay? Henry R. Luce. And I'm going to read to you a little quote from Vatican Assassins in that regard that is maybe interesting for you to learn. So, he says, Then, one day in 1962, three puppets of the Jesuits, speaking of JFK, Khrushchev, and Castro, overseen by the intelligence agencies of the Knights of Malta, the CIA, and the KGB, created the hoax called, quote-unquote, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That deceit was based on another hoax called, the quote-unquote, the Cold War, which in turn was based on yet another hoax called, quote-unquote, nuclear war. The fear created by the American press controlled by Cardinal Spellman through his Knights of Malta, Henry R. Luce, and now listen, whose nickname as one of Yale's Skull and Bones members was appropriately Baal, I, resulted in a secret agreement between the superpowers. That agreement, prohibiting an American invasion of Cuba, secured the island as a landing base for a future foreign invasion of the American Protestant South, pursuant to the evil counsel of Trent." Unquote. Now, what I found so intriguing, that's why I was looking it up, I just wanted to get a little bit more info on Luce, the founder of Time magazine, but when I stumbled upon, when I did a word search in Vatican Assessments and I stumbled upon that, he says that the nickname of Henry Luce in the Skull and Bones secret society was appropriately Baal, I couldn't help to read this little quote, 
when we are going to start now the reading of Code Word Babylon. I think you agree with me, Brett, that that is quite an interesting nickname that he chose there. Huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We know of uh, Adam Whitehouse, who called himself in the Illuminati Spartacus. Also a very interesting nickname, of course. Yeah. Speaking now about this following well-known international organizations or network, which are most of them secret organizations set up under the road uh, under the Rhodes-Milner scheme. The Times, we spoke about Henry Luce, the founder of the Times already. Then we have the Bilderberg Group, which was founded by Ratzinger in Night of Malta. Then we have the America's Bohemian Grove Club, the pedophile sodomistic club of former and ruling American presidents in San Francisco. Then we have the Club of Rome. Then we have the Council on Foreign Relations, the Neurocam International. We have the Rhodes-Milner Roundtable Groups, which is in short just the Round Table. And then we have a very interesting one that is the Royal Institute of International Affairs, aka Chatham House. The Chatham House that is in over there in the United, uh, United Kingdom is the European branch of the Council on Foreign Relations. What the Council on Foreign Relations is for United States of America is the Royal Institute of International Affairs, also known as the Chatham House, in Europe. That is a fact a lot of people do not know. And then, of course, we have the Trilateral Commission and, as I mentioned already, the United Nations. Now, these are some of the quote-unquote instruments which Carol quickly says are at the disposal of the Rhodes Secret Society. At the disposal, isn't that an interesting formulation? Yeah, yeah sure is. All these secret societies will be used to further the goal of the Rhodes Secret Societies. And that goal, well, we come to that in a minute, so I'm not commenting on that. You can see for yourself while I'm reading this. Anyway, he tells us that in New York, the Roundtable Group was known as the Council on Foreign Relations. These Roundtable instruments, says quickly, were designed to promulgate the idea of the formation of a federal or one world government based on the notion of the unification of the British Empire and the United States of America. This British-American reunification lark is a ruse in the best Jesuit tradition. The reader will recall that quickly, who was a Jesuit, tells us that the constitution of the Round Table, the, foreign, the Council on Foreign Relations, and those many organizations founded by the Rhodes Wills, such as the Rhodes Scholarship Fund, etc., are all based on the constitutions of the Jesuits, with the words Roman Catholic Church merely being replaced by British Empire. Now, these institutions are little more than actors in a puppet show. The reader may wish to consult Larry Abraham's Toilet Conspiracy, a well-documented expose of the CFR. It has even been intimated that General Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, played a role in the Rhodes Round Table. There are also claims that Cherry Blair, wife of former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, is an ancestor of Mr. Booth and the notorious John Wilkes Booth, the assassinator of, or the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. But that's an aside. 
The following reports, clipped from the Chicago Tribune, are particularly worthy of mention. In the July 15, 1951 issue, the Tribune ran an article by William Fulton entitled, quote, Roads, Ideals, Slant State Department Policies, unquote, subtitled, quote, Key Posts Held by Oxford Scholars, unquote. It read, hold on. Key positions in the United States Department of State are held by a network of American Rhodes Scholars. Rhodes Scholars are men who obtained supplement education and indoctrination at Oxford University, with the bills paid by the estate of Cecil John Rhodes. Rhodes wrote about his ambition to cause, quote, the ultimate recovery of the United States of America as an integral part of the British Empire, but this is a euphemism for the Roman Catholic Church. His intimates have, his intimates have admitted the scholarships were established for the primary purpose of instilling political bias rather than providing education, unquote. Now, this is a very profound quote that we've read here. Where do you ever read in a newspaper today, Brett, in an American newspaper like the Chicago Tribune, that Rhodes scholars are men who obtain supplemental education and indoctrination? Where would you ever read that today, that they admit that so blandly in a newspaper, that people who are educated for the higher uh, posts in American government are indoctrinated. William Fulton makes it very clear here. He makes a very clear point. He says Rhodes wrote about his ambition to cause the ultimate recovery of the United States of America as an integral part of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, and he says this out in the open. He says this on the Chicago Tribune in 1951. Same newspaper on July 16, 1951. So that's just the next day. William Fulton wrote another article, quote, Rhodes' ideas find fertile ground in the United Nations, subtitled, Scholars Advance British Schemes, unquote. Now, quote reads as follows. American Rhodes scholars, men who have received education and indoctrination at Oxford University, England, are prominent in the affairs of the United Nations. The United Nations is an outgrowth of schemes developed by the scholar's patron, Cecil Rhodes. In his writings, the diamond despot of South Africa showed he hoped the scholarships would promote his grandiose idea. 32 American collegians go to uh, Oxford each year under terms of Rhodes' will. Unquote. This America, this African state, uh, Rhodesia, mm. as it was called, uh, Zimbabwe, which is oh. today, yeah, um, and and there are the most African diamonds coming from, mm. because he was the miner there, and I just thought, what a coincidence! A coincidence that I've just read in the beginning of this chapter about the times, Henry Luce, Henry Luce being a knight of Malta. I read about that in the book Vatican Assassins. When they read this book, when they study this book with us, that they can make these kinds of connections and all of a sudden ask questions that would never have popped up in their minds before. Now let's continue because I think it is getting even more interesting. 
And in the same tribune of July 19th, 1951, so now we have had publications of the 15th of July, the 16th of July, and now from the 19th of July, that William Fulton was a busy bee at that month in 1951. In an article titled Rhodes Wards Hawk Global Scheme in the United States, subtitled Peril Propaganda for One World, Fulton reported the following quote Rhodes scholars returning from schooling and indoctrination. I can't get over that he uses that word already three times in his articles, it's just wonderful. Rhodes scholars returning from schooling and indoctrination at Oxford University, England, are the principal hawkers of globalist propaganda in the United States of America. Previous articles, yeah, read the one from 15th and 16th July, in this series have disclosed that many of the 1,185 living American Rhodes Scholars have obtained key positions in the State Department, in the United Nations, and in the Economic Corporation Administration and other government agencies where they have worked towards fulfillment of the schemes of their imperial patron. Their imperial patron. Who is their imperial patron? The Pope Rome. Because the society does everything to bring back the quote-unquote British Empire I have devoted an entire chapter on the occult origin of the philosophy of the United Nations in Volume 2 to this work. So again, he makes a little bit of advertisement to buy Chapter 2 at Book 2, which we already did, and we are going to read this when this is finished. I'm very much looking forward to it. But first, things first. First, we have to finish this book. It will suffice here, says P.D. Stewart, to quote the following statement from the Jesuit-trained David Spangler, Director of Planetary Initiative for the United Nations. Quote, No one will enter the New World Order until he or she will make a pledge to worship Lucifer. No one will enter the New Age unless he will take a Luciferian initiation. And we can read for that in confirmation in the source where P.D. Stewart has that from, and that is David Spangler speaking in 1991. He also wrote in his book Reflections on the Christ on pages 44 through 45 that, quote, Christ is the same force as Lucifer. Lucifer prepares man for the experience of Christhood. Professor at Jesuit Lent, Georgetown University. What are these instruments to which Quigley refers? Now, according to Quigley, Rhodes and his mentor, Stead, agreed to make, quote, Washington, D.C. the capital of the whole organization or allow parts of the empire to become states of the American Union, unquote. If Washington was to be the seat of the Rhodes Jesuit-like secret society, could it be that the Jesuits control Washington through their accolades, Messrs. Clinton and Bush? Could it really be the Jesuits control Washington through the American presidents? 
Wheatley writes further in his renowned and very remarkable work, Tragedy and Hope, that the Rhodes Society of the Elect was formally established in 1891, but that its outer circle, known as the Association of Helpers, was later organized by Lord Milner as the Round Table. Money for their activities originally came from Cecil Rhodes, J.P. Morgan, the Rockefeller and Whitney families and associates of bankers, Lazard Brothers and Morgan, Grenfell and Company. These are the banking corporations that run America's economy today and are just a few of the quote-unquote instruments of which Quigley speaks. As we wrap up this particular episode, and I think we're going to have to go further into the series and look at some more of the information at a, at a deeper level as we're going forward. Um, we're going to listen to Dr. Walter Veith, professor from the University of Cape Town, and he's going to discuss a little bit here about Carol Quigley. And just like Anthony, Dr. Anthony Sutton, Carol Quigley is just an individual writer and author. He was a leading scholar at Georgetown University, and he was a Jesuit, and he was a man who put this information out and changed the dynamic in the public worldview, making people aware of an, an enormous, unthinkable, colossal conspiracy and an elite secret society, a fraternity that was so powerful that I think the, pe the world really couldn't imagine it. And he was the one to really bring this discussion out, and it caused a response, it caused a, a high degree of academic interpretation to kick in, books to be written, articles, and all, all kinds of different documentaries to be made in order to kind of express and explain uh, the reason why we needed British and American supremacy and why such a world order, an Atlanticist, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, if you world order, would be something that, that's, that's beneficial. And you can see why it's so tragic uh, what's happened with Afghanistan. You will see that the fallout from that is going to become just completely enormous because the, the the entire operation was a NATO operation and there was many countries and they had no intention of pulling out in such a debacle, creating such a, a huge vacuum for China and for Russia to get to basically take over the Middle East. And that's what's happening. So as we begin to just kind of discuss this this wider issue of the hegemony of the American and British alliance, we're going to have to look further into the question of the, the Fabian Society, which we haven't really gotten to really discuss too much in this particular episode, but we'll have to go further into it, and other societies like the Pilgrim Society, uh, non-governmental organizations that have a lot of power, like the Council of Foreign Relations and the Chatham House crew there in England, and how hard they've worked to ensure that the, uh, the monarchy and the economic and financial supremacy of London would stay intact while American interests would slowly be subsumed and subordinated to the crown. And so that's a particular lack of independence, a loss of independence that we fought for in 1776. And I think that as Americans, we need to maintain our, 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 our state as a world superpower. We should take the steps needed to be superior in space in the air, at sea, in every military theater, and we should make sure that we're not becoming economically subservient to London. That's what's happening as our money is beginning to crash, as our, we have to recognize that the Federal Reserve System is a central bank that is taking huge astronomical sums of money, international banking credit, from London. And that's who we're indebted to. That's who we pay our, our VIG to every month. Every, you know, every All month long, all year long, we're paying, we're servicing our debt, 
we're paying our VIG to London and our money is devaluating as we become more and more subservient to the economic interests and the financial powerhouse and the, 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 money, the money powers of London and ultimately of Europe. That's why we need to go back into this murky and obscure history and we'll have to go back so many decades, so many centuries in order to unpack and educate and illuminate you to what the, what the, what the treaties are, what the charters are, what, who the dynamic players are, who are the Class A shareholders at the Federal Reserve, the private shareholders that, that own our debt. Who are these individuals? Who are these societies? Who are the, the society of uh, royal mercers and, and other, other uh, un, un, unheard of components to the inner temple of the city of London and the banking square mile, as they call it? These are other interesting aspects that are affecting our fate and our, our sovereign our national sovereignty here in America. And we need to know what those, who those individuals are, who those secret societies and corporations and who it is that is beginning to use our increasing and growing compounding debt as an instrument, of a, as a weapon against us as individuals here in America. We're not subjects of the crown. We're individual free men. And the only way to take us down is to impoverish our nation and to bring us to a place of economic ruin and famine. And that's what very slowly, very gradually, the Federal Reserve debt system has done to us. So in order to discuss this more, let's listen to Walter White. So let's look at the confrontation that we're heading for. And let's get some background so that we get our focus right again. Where is the enemy? It's very important to know where is the enemy. Isn't that correct? We must understand the enemy. We must understand how he thinks. Otherwise, we can get confused in all these side issues. So, let's go back to basics. The only people in the world, writes Pat Shannon, who is journalist at large, says, it seems, who believe in conspiracy theory of history are those of us who have studied it. He talks about Franklin Roosevelt might have, you know, exaggerated. And then he refers to Carol Quigley, who was the Jesuit schoolmaster, if you like, of American presidents from Georgetown University. He was Bill Clinton's favorite professor at Georgetown, and he boldly admitted in his tragedy and hope that the multitudes were already under the control of a small but powerful group bent on world domination, and Quigley himself was part of that group. Basics. A small group is in control of what's happening in the world, and he is part of that group. So he's basically telling us the Jesuits are in control of the world, because he himself is a Jesuit. That's what he's saying. So if I look at the news, and I look at the Middle East, and I look at the war on terror, and all the issues that revolve around it, and the economic collapse, and all of these fearful things coming upon the world, and catastrophes, then, according to this, someone behind the scenes is in control. This is what he said. 
Now, let's ask him to give us a little bit more insight, because if he was Bill Clinton's favorite professor, who was, after all, a very prominent, and still is behind the scenes, a very prominent member of the elite, well, let's see what else he has to say. He said, in Tragedy of Hope, the arrangement or the argument of two parties, political parties, should represent opposed ideas in policies and perhaps of the right and the other of the left. It's a foolish idea, acceptable only to doctrinate and academic thinkers. Instead, the two parties should be almost identical so that the American people can throw the rascals out at any election without leading to any profound or extensive shift in policy. The policies that are vital and necessary for America are no longer subjects of significant disagreement, but are disputable only in details of procedure, priority, or method. So I say, doesn't matter what party you vote for, the policy is going to be exactly the same. The question is, where is the policy heading, and who controls the policy? Now, he already told us who, he says, will control the policy. But then he continues, and he says, you know, loyalty is one thing, loyalty is very important, but what you also need is dissent. You need dissent. The two need to be in a vital relationship to each other. Without dissent, basically, we'll get nowhere. So he says. So we'll wrap up this episode, and we're really just a partial way to completing the, the full picture here. And you can see that we're really tying together all the old cultic features that we've been going through in previous episodes. So we have to deal with Albert Pike. Again, had to include... Anthony Sutton in this research. We again had to reference Helena Blavatsky and the ties to the United Nations, which have everything to do with the occult witchcraft and the occult esoteric societies of Alice A. Bailey, who, who so effectively shaped the thinking of Robert Muir and uh, the other fellow Spangler. Who are just all Luciferians. They're all their their eyes are all lit up with the bright lights of international celebrity and Hollywood and New York jet setting and the academic powerhouse of Georgetown and its influence over Washington D.C. and they're lit up with this idea that that uh, the the God of the Bible is the the dark deity and the, the true source of light and hope for the future is Lucifer, and that's the whole basis of building the United Nations, and this was Lord Milner's plan. This is Alfred Milner's plan as he set into forth, uh, into motion by the will of Cecil Rhodes and these roundtable uh, secret societies who brought together these esoteric groups, brought together the Freemasons and the Papal Knights and all these different clandestine organizations to work together in order to bring about the results that you see today. And I have no doubt that the stability that was lost and given up and just thrown away in Afghanistan was part of the, the move of internationalism. I think they like the to, to just create new distractions in the headlines. They like to make human sacrifices out of victims who will be stuck there in, in Afghanistan behind the Taliban lines. And you can see that this is really just the work of the Obama administration back again. The, uh, the elitist internationalist individuals, the Samantha Powers type individuals, the uh, Hillary Clintons.
who work for the party of Davos, who are interested in, in bringing about an end to national sovereignty and bringing us into an international global government, have uh, no interest in seeing uh, American hegemony being empowered there in Afghanistan, having a forward deployment base, you know, only 400 miles from from China, we lost our foothold in that area of the world, and now everyone on the, the TV and on the propaganda news networks, far from discussing the legitimacy of, of Biden or, or you know running up ads against Trump, now they're just talking about the decline of America. And I think that's what Obama was trying to bring about was a steady, managed decline of American economic freedom, American energy self self sufficiency, and American individual freedoms, national sovereignty. We were, you know, if we were brought back under the umbrella of the British Empire, I think that we'll no longer be able to maintain ourselves as an independent constitutional American Republic, but we'll be reconstituted in this North American Union. And I think that's the point that we've been making and that's what they've been driving to towards this whole time. And it was an embarrassing, demoralizing act of, of military defeat that the Biden administration consciously and knowingly put us through. And with that, we'll end this episode. And I appreciate you coming back again to Looking Glass Forum.